Hello and welcome to SDP Talks, a series of conversations with politicians, academics, authors and public intellectuals. I'm William Clouston, leader of the Social Democratic Party. Today my guest is the writer and former European parliamentarian, Claire Fox. Claire and I discuss the nature of the free speech crisis in British public life, the future for identity politics as part of our political debate, and what Brexit may mean and look like from an economically left-leaning perspective. Enjoy the show. It's a pleasure to welcome to SDP Talks, um, writer, broadcaster, uh, director of the Academy of Ideas, and former European parliamentarian, Claire Fox. Welcome. It's great to be talking to you. There's so much to talk about now. Um, and I'd like to kick off with uh, free speech, which I know is a massive issue uh, currently. And if, if I can, I'd like to start off with a quote. Um, John Gray uh, wrote recently, today we are no longer living in a free society. Instead, we are ruled by those who try and enforce their extreme views by shaming and ruining those who think differently. Do you think he's right? I don't know. The word extreme I feel uncomfortable with, but I think the rest of it is completely spot on. It feels to me as though the moment is not just a free speech crisis. I mean, we kind of knew already that there was an atmosphere of no platforming people. Um, I don't just mean at universities, but there was an increasing tendency to say that you can't say that. Mm. You know, that's unacceptable. I find that offensive or people saying, you know, that's creating trauma when I hear you say that words were given and imputed with the ability to harm us. Mm. And so we were already struggling with an increasingly censorious atmosphere. Now, I think this phrase cancel culture, which is not entirely satisfactory, but that phrase has come to mean more than that, which is that if you misspeak in some way, if you say something that goes against an ever narrower, prescriptive, acceptable opinion, on a number of uh, issues, you, there is an attempt to destroy your credibility, to delegitimize you by mm. this kind of public shaming. Mm. I, I heard somebody the other night say, well, you know, nobody's lost their job in UK media over this, you know, why is everybody whinging? I mean, that was effectively it. Mm. But the fact that you'd even want somebody to be, have their reputation destroyed, and I think that even if you don't lose your job, the idea that you can be written off as a, as a fascist apologist, as alt-right, as, as a racist, as a bigot, as a xenophobe, as a transphobe, all of these phrases we're now so familiar with because they're bandied around a huge amount. Mm. You know, the idea that, all right, well, you can keep your job, but your reputation is utterly trashed in the public square. Yeah. This it's seems not... to me to be different than just saying you're not allowed to say that. It's gone further. It's more malicious, more toxic. Yeah, I mean, there's more to it anyway i mean if you the fact that it that no one's lost their job um isn't the end of the story because of course the pressure on people to toe the line to say the right thing um distorts what they say doesn't it so i mean it's already doing that job um for it i mean that the pressure put on journalists to 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 be very careful what they say and other people in institutions is everywhere so that's i mean in a sense it's not so much that no one's lost their job, it's, it's look at what they're actually having to, to say or rather not say, yeah? Um, somebody 
you know, I know it, I, I, it can't be made public because, and that's what this atmosphere is like, but somebody I know who works in a public service has recently been formally disciplined for writing a letter that they didn't make public, but simply writing a letter to their, in response to a demand for support for Black Lives Matters and unconscious bias training and so on, wrote a letter objecting and was disciplined for it. The thing that then has occurred in relation to this is that the people that this person works with know that story. Yeah. The, uh, an example is made, mm. uh, you know, HR are called in and so on. So I think that what we've got, to, and, and this is one of many stories. I mean, there are people who've lost their jobs, but it's a climate, an atmosphere in which you know that potentially your employment is at stake. Mm. Mm. Potentially you are told that there is a correct answer. Mm. And mm. if you don't give the correct answer, that you can be cast off and cast out of polite society. So I yeah. think there's enormous pressure mm. to self-censor. Yeah. And I there's, or speak in bad faith, which is even worse, isn't it? Where you kind of like nod along, knowing you don't believe a word of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I wrote a little piece for, for Spiked uh, last week, which went pretty well. And it was comparing where we are now to, um, to the, to the Iron Curtain. I visited Poland, I had a friend went there and just after martial law, and they, they, they basically had three species of truth. You know, the, the Pravda truth, public truth, which was completely false, everyone <coughs> was. And then they had workplace truth, which is what you describe actually. Everyone was very, very careful what they said at work. Um, they, they couldn't speak out. Workplace truth was a little bit closer to truth than Pravda truth, but then there was truth at home, which was the only truth they could rely on. And what I've found odd is the speed. I mean, we, in Britain, we, we think we've got a sort of high level of embedded rights. You know, the sort of Englishman's right to speak, of what, you know, free speech in the pub and so on. And we think we've got that. But then all of a sudden, the conditions are right for uh, a movement from the States. We've imported some of this stuff. And all of a sudden, all the institutions like ducks in a row have actually you know just fallen fallen down and are all s saying the same thing which would be a miracle <laughs> if they really thought the same thing so i i, I don't know what, what do you, what's your reaction to that well it's like a it's like a meme rather than something that people have been completely convinced of hmm. so every institution knows that in order to put themselves on the right side of history as it's often described Mm. that they must be seen to sign up to this agenda. The reason why it's happened with such speed is because those people, those of us who have been arguing that there's a free speech crisis for mm. the last decade have been dismissed, mm. generally told that this was confined to student radicals, that we shouldn't mm. worry about it. Mm. And also there's a generational problem, which is that it's posited as though the young people of today are particularly sensitive mm. to the uh, insights of oppression. They are uh, far more in, in tune with defending people who are oppressed and that something about being older makes you, you know, kind of uh, unable to see the bigotry around you and so on. Yeah. And there's a real defensiveness there. So, you know, immediately you're, 
anyone who argues for principal position on free speech can be dismissed as an old fogey, somebody who's, you know, old fashioned, out of date, not in touch. Now, the thing about this is, is that this is a generalization in all levels. You know, not all young people feel the same. Yeah. But the spokespeople of uh, the youth are almost used to ventriloquize a mm. set of ideas. But it does make institutions feel defensive because inevitably institutions are, and organizations are run by slightly older people who've worked their way up the chain. You know, that's the way it goes, right? The 18-year-old is not the CEO. So the CEO suddenly thinks, oh, my God, you know, I'm in my 50s. Maybe I'm not in tune. I don't want the young to think I'm not like that and so on and so forth. So you've got a combination of those things. Um, but yeah. I do think the fact that we haven't intellectually argued the case for free speech, I don't mean individuals haven't, but there hasn't been a real pushback against an encroachment on the freedom to speak freely, to think freely even, yeah. means that in a way everything's falling like skittles you know they're kicking at an open door yeah i think that's right i think they i mean certainly yourself and mick human or everyone else has been arguing on this you can see the very very long tail of it and i you know i'd argue that the you can't you wouldn't have got here um in a in a in a couple of months we didn't just no. suddenly arrive here this is a very long tail and if you look at some of the polling evidence on respect for democracy respect for free speech it's actually been in decline, quite serious decline. Respect for democracy has. It's quite alarming. Um, yeah, and maybe you, you know, you, you do feel quite old-fashioned defending it. Some people think it's not very, you know, it's not, it's not that important. Um, but I think the the giving way of people, possibly of our generation, in institutions is a terribly uh, mistaken thing. And it's it is it's a, it's it's sort of a it's governed by fear. And what you worry about is that Brett uh, Weinstein's right in saying that basically what happened at Evergreen State College, uh, where the, the, the leadership of the college just gave, gave in completely, and then it got worse. And the more they gave in, the worse it got. And then that, that basically, a slow motion, has happened in every institution that we've got. But it's also the case that, you know, on the giving in, I mean, the, the Evergreen College example which if people aren't familiar, they should become familiar with. But I remember talking about that, you know, slightly obsessively as it was happening in real time. Mm. And people thinking it was, again, an outlier, you know, an exception. Mm. But you could see, uh, when I wrote, um, I find that offensive, you know, that was, I can't remember, you know, four years ago, or five years ago, whenever it was, Mm. four years ago. Mm. Um, it, It was as though I was, you know, people sort of said, oh, you're talking about all these things in America, they won't happen here. Whereas I could see all the trends happening here. Mm. And again, it was dismissed as, you know, when you said about streams, it was dismissed as this is the extreme, but actually I could see it was the mainstream. Mm. In terms of the kind of supine behavior of people in authority, Mm. the bit that's confusing, and by the way, I don't know the answer to this entirely, but say for example, something like Oxford University where you have the dispute about the road statue, uh, roads must fall, where it started in a way, the statue toppling mm. or in the UK. That was what, what we were familiar with. Mm. But what we've also got to remember is that intellectually, the academic world has been riven by post-structuralism, post-modernism, anti-colonial uh, uh, um, uh, race uh, critical race theory for many years so mm. there is an intellectual cohort that have been attacking the basis 
of mm. Western liberalism, the Enlightenment, mm. the philosophers of the Enlightenment have th- developed an academic worldview yes. that, that has already been eating away at. So, so in many ways, the students are lobbying a group of academics who already believe that these institutions are rotten at the core, Western yeah. institutions. So it's a difficult, it's a, it's a combination of some of them being fearful and lots of them actually believing it. Mm. That they themselves can't defend, uh, uh, you know, something like, uh, well, history, for example. They, they don't know how to mm. deal with uh, a situation where history is uh, under attack. Now, mm. I don't mean defend Cecil Rhodes. I don't even mean defend the statue. Mm. It's just that whatever the lightning point is, there's already a sort of great, great degree of uh, disillusionment with what one has historically known as Western civilization. There's certainly, if, uh, you're right, that the, there is a huge intellectual hinterland in the, in the academy to support all this, and they've produced people that um have been educated into this way of thinking and then they've gone into this uh, institutions what i'm interested in is that the by way of a solution is that that's true but it's also clear a bit like the brexit situation that there's a misalignment between those at the top of the institutions who people that are running the bbc for instance and what i would call that just the mainstream opinion of, of british citizens and i think there's an opportunity there for, for, for those of us who, th- who have identified that, to, to speak up, actually, for what is probably a majority. And, I, and yeah. at the end of the Spike piece, I was, thinking, I was trying to think about solutions. And, and it's e- oh, sometimes it's easier to, um, to, to describe problems, isn't it? You know, you can, you, you, this is the problem, that's the problem. You can get that right. But the bit of getting it, having a solution, or having something productive is, is a lot harder. But I, I just said, well, at the end of it, the solution is is to take the freedom to, to 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 speak freely. The problem I have with that is that I understand that you know I mean our our small like uh, uh, you know political parties, social democrats, we can we're not we're not um, bound by the sort of constraints that some others are. And as an individual, I'm I'm free to say what I like. But you know you're right that a lot of people who depend you know and have got a mortgage to pay and and, and bills to pay do not have that freedom. But I, I, I think there is someone somewhere has got to speak up for the, the, the majority, surely. Absolutely. I mean, I, I don't suggest that this, um, the, the takeover of the institutions or that institutional acceptance of these ideas means that they have got widespread popularity. Mm. I simply mean that that's been going on for some time. Yeah. And it's both at the top, middle and bottom of institutions. But nonetheless, for millions and millions of people, and probably the majority, this is something that they didn't even know was being discussed. You know, it's yeah. been discussed. It's been there's been changes to the way people understand things mm. behind the backs of. So that's why you can understand. You know, when the if you're okay with the statue toppling, mm. but if you haven't been following it carefully, you think what? Do you mean you're taking down that statue or yeah. decolonize that or the past is this or, you know, they would be bemused. Um, so, it's, of course, it's important to give leadership. I mean, I want everybody to speak out, but I just am sensitive to the fact that I don't want everyone to lose their jobs. 
No. So I know, therefore, there needs to be leadership. But your your other point that you said about the the Soviet, um, you know, the Eastern Bloc mm. and that atmosphere mm. is really well made because it does seem to me that the people don't stop thinking. You know, they they don't. So people are talking, but they'll be whispering. Yeah. And it will go elsewhere. And in some ways, it can then fester and it can be corrupted. Mm. And there's no doubt then that there's dangers involved in not being able to speak freely, not being yeah. able to ask questions, query things, or people being forced into uh, binary positions. So you think, well, if that means that, then I must be on the other side, when in fact mm. you might not be on the other side. It's just a bit more complicated. And so I actually think we have an obligation, those of us who are free, mm. and not going to be sacked, even if there's attempts to cancel us. Yeah. Um, to give a lead and say, actually, you don't need to go from one extreme to another. You know, you don't have to go, I'm not supporting Black Lives Matters. Therefore, I'm going to emphasize that White Lives Matters at the expense of Black, you know, and so on and so forth. I mean, I'm, I'm caricaturing it. But, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. You don't have to go into a situation where you say, I don't like uh, the attacks on, you know, the, the, the decolonizer curriculum because I think the empire was brilliant and everybody was had a wonderful time under colonialism because that would be untrue and it's not right. So I think therefore, if you can create a, an open discussion, it allows people to realize they don't have to go to either side of that. And that's exactly. very important to me. Now you talk, you mentioned the word dangers there. And I just, so to move on, I think, um, Obviously, the, the impact of the BLM movement in, in the UK and, uh, and elsewhere through the West, interestingly, particularly the Anglo uh, or the, um, the sort of what, what has been described as the North Sea Protestant West, because an interesting factor about BLM and the, the impact of the cultural revolution that's happening is that below the olive line, it's not quite the same. Uh, that's just an interesting observation. But um, so we appear to have imported um, Americanized sort of hyperracial politics or overnight, but as, as you say, I don't think these things can happen overnight, but we appear to have done so. And so I want to ask you, how, how significant a cultural moment do you think this is? Do you think it's transitory? Do you think, you know, after the lockdown finishes, everything goes back to normal? Or do you think there's a sort of secular major change going on here, which we should think about? I think there's a, there's a major fight about to happen. I think that it's, it certainly won't go back. Mm. You know, the, 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 the trends towards identity politics, which is, of course, another thing which has been um, happening apace mm. over a period of time. And, and um, you know, somebody like the writer Ben Cobley wrote a book on it. I mean, lots of people have tried to alert us to the, the problems of identity politics, which are so divisive. Mm. I think that this moment this cultural moment cements them mm. and makes them very difficult to argue against and makes them more unassailable. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't. It also, by the way, brings them into focus because, you know, if before um, we were saying that, you know, a lot of people were in denial about the free speech crisis, a lot of people also just didn't know that there would be this argument over uh, um, statues or identity or you know how we how we whether we judge people for example by their character or their skin color mm. or how we defined 
you know, gender and so on. These kind of debates were almost kind of like, you know, a group of people involved in the culture wars, but on the margins, sort of people mm. like me alerting people, other people arguing against me. This is now in a way being opened up to the public because of lockdown, maybe, or because of this Black Lives Matters moment, which mm. means that it doesn't matter where you go in the country, people will have a view on it, right? Everybody, yeah. to a certain extent, is, is now being um, exposed to some of this discussion. And whereas I don't necessarily like the way some directions it goes in, at least it means that that conversation has inadvertently been opened up. So at the very time that there are people saying you can't have the conversation, they've also demanded that every single person in this country goes along with, you know, Robin DiAngelo's white fragility. (laughs) Suddenly everyone's like, oh, what's that then? And they start talking about it. Well, what is white privilege? And that gives you an opportunity, I think, a positive opportunity to say, let's have this conversation then. I'm not frightened of it. Let's have it in the out. And so I don't think it, what I'm saying is, I don't think there's going back from that, but there's also an intellectual battle and it won't go away unless that intellectual battle is had out. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. And I, I think we should relish a debate about it. And I think in particular, the the actual political programme that BLM, the official BLM of published should be scrutinised and debated more. And I've been disappointed to see that the media has skirted over that and taken the really cherry picked what they what they wanted to see the, the sort of nice bits, uh, but ignored some of the the really hard, um, uh, you know, anti-family, you know, very radical stuff, um, which which should have been uh, judged on on a par with any other political movement. And it hasn't been. It's interesting that it hasn't been. But I, I think the central premise uh, that you, you can somehow get progress or bring people together by am- emphasizing their differences and hammering those differences is false. I think it's plainly false. And I think it, it brings me to the, the letter that Andrew and I and yourself wrote and, and published in The Spectator, which I was very happy to, to, to sign at the bottom, uh, Don't Divide Us. Um, is a much better message. I mean, it's, it, it, it just, the outcomes of having that attitude towards trying to unite people, um, it's just so more positive. I said on Twitter the other day, I think actually Don't Divide Us could well be the most important political slogan going forward. It would be great to think so. I mean, it, it, it had more modest the name, which it was just an attempt to say, look, there's a group of us across the political spectrum, across ages and across ethnicities, and we weren't trying to go for the Harper's 150. We weren't trying to do anything um, too, too major. But just to try and say very quickly, um, we did it very quickly. I mean, we wrote it and we kind of tried to publish yeah. it quite quickly because I could see that this uh, attempt at dividing us in this instance around ethnicity and skin colour was actually going to lead to some quite dangerous trends. Mm. Because if you say to a country that's majority white, which, you know, the idea that one has to even be defensive about that, I mean, it Mm. just is. The majority of people are white. Mm. (coughs) It's not an achievement. Mm. It's not a sin. Mm. It's a reality. Mm. It's the least interesting part of who we all are in my opinion, you know. Yeah, I totally like. agree with you. I, I, but that I is t- emphasised, and then you're told that you've done something wrong. I mean, you know, that you are privileged as a consequence of what? You think, what? I never did anything. What? I'm just white. I, I mean, I never, what? It, 
it's nonsense, Claire. And I, 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 I mean, at the SDP is, is a very, in the north certainly is a very working class party. And uh, I, I did a little poll uh, when when this started coming up in the media about two months ago of members, SDP members around Tyneside, Teesside, York, Yorkshire particularly, and w just to find out what the general view about white privilege as an idea was, and it was rejected uh, instantly. I mean, pe people had most of us, uh, most of our um, ancestors were working in the heavy industries, in coal mining. You know, many of them uh, lost lost uh, limbs, and if they didn't lose limbs, they're coughing up uh, coal dust. That's the reality. That's the reality of of most people's uh, experience. You know, a generation ago, and and I think I think working class people are very very quick. I think it's the same as the Brexit thing. Actually, working class people are very very quick to spot an attempt to use a sort of power thing and hang a label on them. They're, and I think the reason for that is quite often they're at the wrong end of the power game and they suss it straight away. And I think yeah. this time round, some of the best, uh, in, you know, the quickest um, cut through has been from people saying, don't pin that on me, it's not gonna work. But it's also the case that as, uh, you know, a part of this, um, we have these terrible acronyms like BAME or mm. POC, you mm. know, in which people who are not white, i.e., again the most superficial aspect of them their skin color mm. are lumped together and a movement is launched apparently in their name mm. which obviously is incredibly insulting to their individuality to mm. you know so that so they, their agency is completely under undermined by that mm. you know and so white privileges or white people over here uh, you know you have privilege if you deny it you're in denial and then everybody who is BAME or everyone who's black, or even if you said everyone who's Asian, of course, mm. they don't all think the same things, right? But yeah. racism historically, and this is an important fact because it's in living memory that there was institutionalized racism in this mm. country. That is true. And that there were, you know, in, in when I say living memory, Mike, living memory, yeah. things have changed, but people were, you know, not employed because of the color of their skin. They were not, you know, and the usual uh, no, no blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Mm. Those things did happen. And also where there were organized gangs of racists who mm. said deport every black person from this country. So this is, this is the key. So, and it changed and it changed dramatically yeah. because people fought against it. Yeah. It doesn't mean that everything was eradicated, but it's quite important because there's still, sorry, it's just, there's still a rump of racists in this country. Of course there are, right? Who are racist in the traditional sense. Mm. And my concern with Don't Divide Us was, if everybody else doesn't argue against this, that rump of racists mm. will play on the fact that the majority of people in the country who are white have been called racist. Yeah. And they will play on that and they will whip up division even further and they will play on white victimhood and yeah. try and kind of create a new movement. And I wanted to try and say, no way, don't divide us. No, I think that's, no, I think that you're exactly right. And there's a lot in that. So that what I think one of the worst aspects uh, of, of importing American style hyper-racialism into the UK is that you're encouraged, people are encouraged constantly to see the worst and to seek out the worst in their fellow citizens and never ever 
to see the more positive side. And John McWhorter, who's a, who's a writer I like a lot and is on uh, Don't Divide Us website in the links, you can have a look. Um, he made a very important point last year before this started up, but he writes on racial politics a lot. You know, Glenn Larry, the same, and Coleman uh, Hughes, excellent. And he made the point that we have made progress. I mean, we have made progress. You know, the, the 64 Civil Rights Act is a reality. The 68 Act in the States is a reality. Um, on any metric, things have got better. So McWhorter's point is why? How can it be fashionable to deny that? I mean, it's true. I mean, you, we don't have utopia. You know, human beings are flawed. But to deny that there's been any progress seems to be the most fashionable thing in the world. Why? Why? Well, that, and that's, that's the problem with flattening history and a dehistoricized, ahistorical approach, mm. which is, you know, where you do get, and I mean, we've, we've seen an example of um, the, the grime artist Wiley um, interviewed in The Voice mm. in relation to another uh, controversy around anti-Semitism, but mm. he sort of basically said, I am still suffering the hangovers of slavery because mm. the way I, as a grime artist, am treated by my management and by lawyers. And you right. do think, do you know what I mean? Wiley, you haven't yeah. got a clue what slavery is if you think no. that no. there's a direct line from yeah. our grime artists. But what you get is you get this kind of an attempt at plundering history mm. in order to effectively emphasise a victimhood today. Yeah. with no specificity as to what has changed, what has improved, what has not improved. I mean, of course, that's allowed to. Mm. And I think it's a great insult, by the way, to those people who were the anti-racists of the past, mm. the, the, the people who fought long and hard to improve civil liberties, equal treatment, fight mm. racism, mm. That, that basically their work, apparently, we've all got to ignore that, right? So apparently they didn't make any difference at all. because. Well, but they did. This is the but thing. But they did. No, but I'm saying if you go along yeah. with, with what's being said by those people who support a kind of Black Lives Matters moment, even rather than movement, mm. um, if you basically say racism is as bad as ever today, then what's the point of ever fighting racism, right? I mean, yeah. what's the point? Basically, you've just told us yeah. that it's exactly the same, that nothing has changed since slavery or since colonialism that you actually are treated exact, and you think, well, first of all, it's not true. So yeah. to point that out, just in case anyone doesn't, but even if you were to think it was true, what you would be effectively saying is that all of those anti-racist fighters had wasted their time and all the changes they made had made no difference. So it seems absolutely the case to me that you have to be precise. And if you say that there's racism in the UK, and undoubtedly in some, there will be pockets of racist people with backward views, there mm. might well be instances, you say what they are, you look at it and you examine it. Now the difficulty about hyper-racialized discussion mm. is that uh, in the way that you described that phrase, uh, or if you see everything through racial, the racial prism. So today, uh, when um, they announced the, the uh, expulsions from schools, Mm. And there's a higher proportion of uh, young black pupils, mm. actually young black boys who are expelled from schools. Mm. Is that because teachers are racist about young black boys? Or is it more complicated than that? It's now, much more complicated than that. Exactly. But, 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 he, but we, that's the question, isn't it? All yeah. I'm saying is that's what we should... You can't just declare 
as they have done on every radio program I've heard all day, That's right. that this shows that there's racism, not necessarily. It's it not... might show a range of different things. And therefore I want to look at the specific case, the specific accusation, unpick it and look at what drove it, what we think about it and have an open and honest discussion. If when I say that, not to you, but if I say to somebody, let's talk about this and all the nuance about why that might be the case, mm. I'm immediately assumed to be a racist because I'm not going along with saying it is because of racism. Yeah. That's when you get the festering of opinions being driven underground and a kind of silencing of intelligent debate. But the intelligent debate, you've absolutely nailed it there. This is the point. So the B Today programme covered that for about seven or eight minutes this morning. We had three interviews. And um, firstly, I do not believe that the, co the, the, the group of people in the uh, London, say take London, for example. I do not, I mean, we've got friends uh, that are teachers there. I do not believe that the, there's a conspiracy among London teachers and London heads to expel people on racial grounds. That is nonsense. You might get behaviors um, that, that might vary between different groups and they might have to react to them. I, I think anyone trying to widen the discussion about saying, well, what sort of stamp family stability do those kids have at home? How many ab absent fathers are they? You know, they, are they getting into trouble because that isn't uh, as stable as it might be? If you immediately you try and get a more nuanced look at it, you'll actually the point usually isn't made that's that's the criticism i have it a more nuanced point i've listened to uh, i've listened to so much stuff on the bbc which is just superficial nonsense and they never get past first base and, yeah. and the problem with it is they don't realize the consequences of taking a simplistic racialized uh, view of it and, and if they're putting this out people are thinking oh god you know the in inner london people are expelling black lads because they're black yeah and, they, and, and and but also what do you do so this is the dilemma so i might or might not agree as to what you think might be or might not be white there's a behavior difference that's the kind of debate we should be having by the way yeah um is uh, and and also as you say i mean you can say i don't believe i mean it is just not true that there are people are being expelled because they're black. That's not what's happening in modern Britain today. Right. What is happening though, is that, and this debate just sums it up. So you have a declaration that young black pupils are expelled because of racism. Yeah. So say you are a teacher and you go back in September, October, mm. and you have a young black pupil who is behaving very badly in a class and you have a young white pupil who's behaving very badly in the class mm. because, and teachers are already nervous about authority and expulsion and, and removal from school anyway, and if yeah. you followed this debate, mm. you are more likely to know that you will find it easier to get it past the head to expel the young white pupil, whereas you might hold back from yeah. disciplining or pushing the expulsion of the young black pupil. Because sure. you don't want anyone to think you're a racist, i.e. you are treating a young black pupil differently from mm. a young white pupil, yeah. which is what we don't want. Yeah. Because if you want everybody to be treated the same, if the behaviours are equally bad, then you want them both to be expelled. You don't want somebody to be sitting there going, oh God, I'm frightened to expel that person in case anybody thinks. 
And so what I think happens is each time these things are declared as truth, truth rather than let's investigate, you close down yet once more the possibility of treating people equally because you overemphasize that if you treat one group uh, the same as another group, actually you might be seen to be somehow discriminatory and yeah. therefore you've got to therefore keep well away. And we've seen the consequences of that in social policy over the years for some time, I think. Yeah, and nervousness we... by officials to intervene in case they yeah. are labelled racist. We, we all kind of know where that ends. Famously, we saw that in Rotherham. No, what, what happens is that if you introduce, this is, this is what I'm most worried about, the particular moment we're in now, is that you introduce an atmosphere of tension and mistrust and you make everything worse. Anything you're trying to do with social policy, anything you're trying to do with improving things, you make it harder, you make it worse. Claire, can I, can I move on to the final thing yeah. I wanted to talk about? Um, so about, oh, when was it? It was about 16 months ago. Um, I was having a, a glass of wine in London, minding my business with um, Patrick and Suzanne Evans. And I, I got invited along to a, a Leavers of London do, and you were speaking at that, uh, event and I, I got dragged into speaking uh, even after three glasses of Merlot <laughs> um, and uh, I think I got away with it but a, a point I tried to make and I think you made that night was that the it's true that the Brexit um, the main Brexit campaigns you know leave campaigns were, were, were sort of Thatcherite open market things but but the, the fact is that five million of us voted on the left, us centre left and, and some others to the, further to the left. But the left case, I think, to leave the European Union was, was an incredibly strong one. I, I still think that. I think what, once you've, there was no point in getting these levers back from technocrats to give them to other technocrats in the WTO. So it was all about, could you keep a steelworks open? Could you make your own social and economic bargains are you free to you might have some trade friction personally i think that would probably be good i think in in the right areas you might want to try and get your your own uh, wage levels up now all of these things i think are um are impossible without a legit a, 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 an approach to you know national ec domestic economic governance and um i just wondered where you where you feel we are on that because because to some extent it was a sort of first order second order thing you know we we said yes you've got to leave the european union but i never argued for and i never subscribed to the to the sort of free market freewheeling thing where, where do you think we are now on that i think probably that most people associate the economic aspects of brexit more with the free market argument and there's no doubt about it that some of the most ardent Brexiteers are interested most precisely from a point of view of an economic settlement. Mm. But actually, I, I think the, the, the more left-leaning uh, Brexit argument was more about control and democracy. Yeah. Yeah. The reason why that matters is that inadvertently, through the um, shenanigans that tried to stop Brexit from occurring, mm. People were a bit like trying to make the, I'm trying to make a, a, a virtue out of a necessity. But one of the things that happened was there was a greater discussion about the democratic aspects of Brexit mm. after 
the establishment failed to deliver it. Yes. So we had that three and a half years, ironically, of people then sort of saying, actually, this wasn't an economic thing for me. I was basically saying, I want control. I want Mm. my politicians to be accountable to me. Mm. And that brought it more into focus you know your point about there was always a left-wing argument for leaving the european union it had a big tradition on the left right you know left-leaning from far left to center left lots of people thought it it's Mm. just that the left lost their nerve once the referendum was called they basically panicked and thought that that they might be labeled right wing that it was a talk you know and and you know and so on and so forth they panicked about it and they abandoned the field, which meant that although millions of people voted who were on the left for Brexit, mm. the leadership of a left Brexit was absent, to say the least. I think that's interesting, no, because I, I, it's a point I always, in public meetings, you know, David Owen asked him a few times what happened to the, the, the great tradition of um, uh, Euroscepticism in the, in the Labour Party. And, you know, you, talk, you think about... All the way back to Gates, Skill, and, and Attlee, actually, but you know, more it, further uh, on from that, you know, Peter Shaw and Barbara Castle, and uh, you know, Tony Benn, who I think had the best arguments. I think they sussed it straight away in the seventies. That they, you know, they 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 won the arguments but lost the the events, I, I suppose. But I think it was interesting that the that the Euroscepticism within the Labour Party seemed to have been just expunged during Tony Blair's you know sort of new labor thing and it just and i you know you look at the number of elected members in the plp uh it was sort of nine or ten you know it was very small um so yeah i i i think it when it came to it i mean it was weird at that meeting in the you know the leavers meeting that we spoke at in london because quite a few members of the communist party of great britain came up to me afterwards and said thanks for thanks for you know making the argument because although tiny parties they, they 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 no one else was officially backing it on the left uh, but but uh, sdp and them um and it's interesting i no i just i just wanted to bring it up because i you know events the pandemic i think has one of the effects of it has been to really undercut the cocksure sort of confidence that free traders had they thought they've been telling us for 30 years didn't matter where things were made doesn't matter they're indifferent to that it doesn't really can make it anywhere gut your industry undermine your industrial job sector which in the end undermines society because it undermines family and everything will be okay and by the way it doesn't matter if you're you know sourcing all your goods from factories from totalitarian states that doesn't matter either and i just wonder claire do you think that Though the pandemic and the realization that gutting your industry in the West is is not a good idea, do you think that's finally getting through? I think it's certainly in, uh, brought into sharp relief, and I do think that there will be an economic. I, I think that we're likely to have an economic discussion that has a different shape, mm. both because of Brexit and the pandemic. I mean, a combination of those two things. But I think there's other aspects of it, and actually, it goes back to the first part of your discussion because. And one of the reasons why the Labour Party, um, you know, not just the Labour Party, but why the left panicked about Euroscepticism was because there was an attempt at delegitimizing yeah. the Leave vote as racist, xenophobic and bigoted. Mm. And even though none of those things, so in a way it was cancel culture before it existed as a concept, right? Yeah. You yeah. know, and, you know, I, I was not a 
passionate Eurosceptic. I was Eurosceptic, but I, was, I wasn't, it wasn't by any stretch of imagination my main focus. Mm. But I became so incensed in the build-up to the referendum that anyone was, that was on the side of voting leave was being called alt-right, far-right, uh, anti-immigrant, you know, and so on and so forth. But I, I started to get more vocal. As we know, once the referendum was won, instead of that meaning that we left the European Union, there was a doubling down of this delegitimization. Yeah. And it was basically a, a, an accusation leveled at the white working class that they were selfish, that they didn't understand internationalism, that they had no understanding of, you know, that they didn't like foreigners. All of these things were said. Mm. And what it completely missed was that for once people felt that they were grasping hold of their own agency. Yeah. And this attempt at labeling them racist and xenophobic and people who didn't have any understanding of, of, of international affairs was such a slap in the face and an insult to people mm. that they started to, you know, demonstrate that they, they, there was a lot more about them, but the left was so preoccupied with an identity politics version of things that they assumed that pro EU as an identity, it became a, a way of identifying yourself. You know, I am going to vote Remain, which means I'm a nice person. Oh, yeah, yeah. Likes immigrants and agrees with internationalism. And I do think that you and lots of people, I mean, you, lots of us, gave a much richer account of what Brexit was about, really. About a yeah. sense of place, about yeah. a sense of community, about people wanting to feel that they had some ownership over their future and not to be told that it was out of their hands, that it was too complicated, that we had to leave it up to the technocrats in Brussels. People started to say, no, I want to say, I want to say. So I think one of the great things about the post-Brexit moment mm. that, as you say, then is brought to the fore by the pandemic, is that you then start to say, OK, well, now we've got to take some responsibility for how we run our society because we're almost going to start from scratch yeah do, what do we think about our industries what do we think about the division of labor internationally how do we feel about being dependent on uh, different countries for you know and so on and so forth so it's a richer conversation i get very nervous i do get nervous about protectionism i do get nervous that we will turn inwards all of these things are things to be nervous about hmm. but that doesn't mean that you should uh, veer away from that conversation this is exactly the kind of conversation we should be having what kind of society are we going to build now we have the power now yeah. i know we haven't really got the power yeah, yeah but what we have asserted is our, that we want it the range of choices that uh, uh uk government now has has been expanded dramatically and and it's the pandemic is interesting in that you the the strong and supportive state has suddenly you know all it, it just all these years, people have been saying you can't do anything about housing, you can't do anything about public transport, you just can't, you just can't, you can't, Tina, you know, and it's been going on years and years, and then suddenly we find we can, and actually in a way that's very liberating, and I'm, I'm certainly much, much more um, optimistic of, I always thought it, I always, I always suspected that, you know, the, certainly, you know, industry, the, 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 the working classes would be let down to some extent by, um, you know, the free trade, uh, Singapore on Thames sort of version. I mean, they don't, the people that said that didn't even understand what Singapore was, but they, I always thought they'd be let down, but I think actually the event, the recent events have made me much more optimistic about our vision of a, a slightly more domestically focused um, 
uh, national economy. I'm much more confident about that, and I, th I think that's a good, a good thing. So you never know. I mean, uh, you've got to take silver linings, I think, out of events, and, and that may be one. I'd just like to say, just in, in finishing, that um, history is made by people who've got courage to stick their head above the parapet. And although I'm not uh, um, thinking of joining the STP, I, I really admired the fact that you've stuck with it. Yeah. Because you have to start and build things. And you made a point at the beginning, I think this is just so important in this period that we're entering into, that uh, too often it's easy to stand on the sidelines and criticise. It's not always easy to build. And I think that we are now in a, a juncture where it's obvious that history is unravelling. Yeah. And there's a lot to fight for. And therefore it does require that people get stuck in. So I just wanted to... To say to you, I've got a lot of admiration for the work that you're doing. You're very, very kind. And I, and I just think at every level that's true, Claire. I think it's not, I mean, what we're trying to do, I think, is important. But I think at every level, you know, whether it's turning up on your school council or your local council or to a committee, just show up. For heaven's sake, show up. Because if you don't show up, uh, things happen and you think, how do we get here? And part, partly it was because people didn't show up. We'll finish up there, Claire. Thank you very, very much. It's been a pleasure to chat these things through. Take care. I hope you enjoyed this episode of STP Talks, a series of conversations with politicians, academics, authors, and public intellectuals. If you'd like to be updated when new episodes of STP Talks go live, make sure to subscribe or follow us on your podcast platform of choice. And if you're interested in learning more about the Social Democratic Party, do make sure to head over to our website at stp.org.uk. Thanks for listening.